welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning, or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. You join us uh, in a in the middle of a series on this um, often overlooked book, and. This morning is the theme or the sermon title is Christ's Final Judgment of Evil. And we're going to be thinking about that theme of judgment and hence try to give you a feel for the scope of it because largely from 6 through to 20 it is a dominant theme within um, the book of Revelation. Um, we will return to the theme again. We ignored chapters, we, we left out a lot, but in chapters 17 and 18 in particular, we are going to spend in a few weeks' time particularly thinking about empire, God's judgment on empire, and we'll return to that idea we picked up before of the battle of the flesh, the devil and the world, and what it meant in the revelation of empire, and think about what are the lies in our culture, what are the structures and systems, and really just sit with that question about the lies that try and tell us about what um, is important in life. And so we will come to that. but for, for this week, really picking up the, the theme of Christ's final judgment on evil, um, which you probably um, picked up to, to whatever degree in, in the text that were read. So to begin with, I want to offer some preliminary comments as, as part of this message. Firstly, about the importance of this uh, topic and this theme, as well as the relevance as well as some fresh uh, examples of people really wrestling with um, what it looks like to, to come and, and wrestle with this uh, topic. First of all, the, the importance of the topic. There's a whole bunch of reasons why I think it's good to wrestle this. And the first one I want to suggest is, is, is essentially a pastoral one, that many people abandon their Christian faith over the themes like this of judgment. It's relatively common for people to be like, hold on a minute, I have just inherited all these things about God that somebody has told me to believe. Sometimes it's what we grew up with. Then I think, I read, or I, I, I hear some challenges about it, and I read about the stuff in the Bible, and I'm like, I can't have anything to do with that. And they, they walk away with it because perhaps because they've not had ever a chance to, to wrestle with it. So for that reason alone, I think it's, it's worthy of spending some time, as well as the fact that just recognizing it's, it's difficult, but it is there. Just because there are themes that are difficult in the Bible does not mean we just you know, choose to overlook. It, it, it's, it's there, it's there wherever we look, and therefore, just because it's difficult, it doesn't mean it's not important. I think it's also important because we often can hold preconceived or handed down ideas on particular words or themes connected to it, like connotations of wrath or the language like the fear of God or even words like law, 
we, we often come with preconceived or inherited ideas of what those words mean that actually sometimes need examined in light of the, the scriptural witness themselves and go like, well, what do we understand these phrases to mean? Because sometimes unexamined, they, they mean quite different things to what we sometimes uh, see them meaning in the scriptures. And as well as that, I was thinking about some dominant atonement theories that have really been around since the time of the Reformation, they have almost exclusively explained the cross of Christ uh, in terms of Christ bearing God's anger on the cross, which has led to one prominent historian saying, it's almost like theories of atonement make you read John 3.16 as, for God so hated the world that he killed his son. Now, (laughs) That in and of itself is a sermon for another day. And I'm not trying to start by getting some people offside um, because I know there's, um, there's a range of views in that. And I'm not trying to be difficult by alluding to some concerns on particular theories. But there are connections and concerns not too far out of sight of this theme of judgment that we have been reading about that essentially take us to really important questions. That is essential questions. The most essential question, I think, is who is our picture of God? Who is God? And these words and these concepts ruminate around that. And so they are essential for us to wrestle with if they, they build up our, our picture of essentially who God is. And I say all this, therefore, just to make the point that we, we need to think We need to reflect, we need to own these ideas rather than just assume or just inherit knowledge. So therefore I think the topic is important. I also think the topic is incredibly relevant. Cycles of war, famine, violence, conquest and oppression. If this is your world, and I think at the minute, we, we recognize this is our world, then you'll also find it here in these pages in all the raw ages of life and the ugliness of life. You will find these things here, not avoided, not skipped over. It's incredibly relevant to our moment that we find ourselves in. And sometimes as well, the relevance, because it might feel more relevant at the time we were in in history, because but there are often it's not in fashion to think of judgment. We exist in a very therapeutic culture. Now I'll give the caveat. I mean that in a technical term. Therapy is good. There's lots of different therapies, and some of your employees do that. Therapy is a very good thing in all its different shapes and sizes. But I mean it more in a technical sense, in a Western individualistic thing, where our, our main goal in therapeutic culture is to feel better, almost regardless of truth. I'm telling you, if if someone sends a rocket into your home and kills your children, the last thing you want in that moment is just to feel better. When that happens, I guarantee you, you will want truth. You will want justice. You will want that put right. You don't just want something that's going to pep you up and make you feel better. And so the, the relevance whenever you actually... Don't stick your hand and look at the realities of the way life does not sit neatly all the time, far from it, suddenly starts to unfold before us. It's important and 
it's relevant. And there's also been recent attempts to, to wrestle with the question. Sometimes I think we get tricked into thinking this has all been pinned down, thought of before, and let's just learn the answers. And uh, I, I think that's the wrong way to think. I've been really enamored by a, a guy called Greg Boyd, who's written a couple of books that I've not really, I've not gone through yet. I've heard him speak about them. Um, and the book called the, Cru- the Crucifixion of the Warrior God. And it's essentially his wrestling with what do we do with the, the gruesome events that you see in the Old Testament and how do we make sense of those afresh? What does that do to our, if we, if we, if we look at our Bibles as a whole, as the Word of God, how do we make sense? And he, he's, um, I, I haven't yet got my head around what he's essentially saying to either recommend or reject or I, I just think he's doing something really, really interesting. And I liked what I, one of the illustrations he shared, which I will share. He, he took it in the form of, of referring to his wife, so I will take the, the, the opportunity to do that with my wife, Claire. Now, hopefully some of you will know my wife, um, Claire, who's a lovely person. I hope you agree. I think she's lovely anyway, hence why I um, I married her, but he, he gives the illustration. So, so imagine I'm walking down the street and I happen to see um, Claire on the other side of the road walking down. And um, I see her and I see her. She walks past um, maybe somebody begging in the street for, for money. And Claire being Claire, I'm expecting her to go over and, you know, smile, chat, be nice, or maybe give some help or food. Who knows what she do? Just looking on. It's Claire. Claire's a happy person. And then Claire goes over, uh, is she here, but she might be, if she goes over and I'm watching her and she just starts screaming at the person. And more than that, she takes her hat off and just starts hitting them around the head and then finally just pushes them over and then runs off down the street. And, and I'm left there going like, what on earth just happened? And here's what's going to happen in that point. So assume that she, Claire's just run off, and, I, and I, until I can find out, catch up with Claire and figure out what on earth has just happened, I am put in the position where I, ha- I need to figure out what do I think has just happened. And Greg Boyd makes the point, like, naturally, your, your mind is going to go, from what I know of my wife, you know, unless that I've been married to a, a, some sort of sadistic maniac for the last, I'm getting caught, however many years I've been married... <laughs> Um, you know, like, unless I'm mistaken, so my mind will go to, look, look is this a prank? Am I on, am I on a re- reality TV show and it's on me and they're all watching to see? Or maybe it's a, a, a social experiment to see, you know, how crowds react to that. Or maybe the guy had a, sitting on a gun or, you know, she's seen something. I don't know. But he makes the point, what, when, when what we know of somebody... What the work we do is then think, what else could have been going on here? And he makes the point, as, as we look at the beauty of the crucified Christ, as revealing the clearest, truest picture of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, if we look at the beauty of him who went onto the, a tree for us, then it, the work we have to say is, that, well, what else is going on? What else? And we suspend our judgments until we go down that direction. And I guess I find that helpful because I was connecting that to the work we did last week in saying the central vision of Revelation chapter 4 and 5, it culminates is in the vision of the slain lamb on the throne. And this centering vision is an interpretive key. So whatever else comes, 
it goes through that lens. It, it goes through, and so whatever gaps it opens up, whatever spaces it opens up, it gets filled with that lens. Hence why I want to put before you and try and, I guess, if I can model the picture I love the most of, in the Old Testament is of, of Jacob wrestling with God. I think it's a really powerful and really helpful image with what we are invited into in the, the scriptures in general, but particularly in these themes, is this image of, of, of wrestling with God in order to learn to, to love him more truly and deeply. Just before we describe some of the pastures and observations we heard read in the text, let's quickly get rid of some uh, lazy ways of dealing with God's wrath or this theme of God's judgment. First, it's just a big, to go for a caricature of God. This is what you'll find a sort of Dawkins-esque in a new atheist type approach where we create a caricature essentially of God who's just this maniac and angry, sort of capricious God who just goes off on one at times. Um, with all the difficulties in the Old Testament and with the, new, and, and the parts of the New Testament, like, it is a caricature to say any serious theologian that has ever thought is just some sort of off, off the piece, sort of out of control God. What we find is often, time and time again, is a God whose heart aches, who longs for his people to, to, to live well, to be well, to follow him. It's not, it's a picture of a lover. There's, there's no sense of all ugliness that it's just a caricature of this just out of control, angry God. The second one, just to get rid of, is that people often say, we're New Testament people, so not a problem. It's just not reading your Bible, to be honest, because there's as many problems in the New Testament as there are in the Old Testament. So to be able to suddenly say, yeah, but that was you know, Old Testament, and we're, it, it's just not intelligible, particularly because we hold all, all of it as the word of God as we follow the way of Jesus. Um, so that's, that's just not going to cut it. And thirdly, another lazy way, I think, is just kind of go, like, well, that's how primitive people thought then, and we have learned more now. And we'll find that in various different guises. And there is a sense at points, there's something maybe true around how God accommodates at points in the Old Testament, which is another sermon for another day as well, that I'll never do. But... It's, it, it's also cheap and lazy to say that's, that's just how primitive people thought then. We've grown beyond that and past that. Let me describe just some of the things that come up in chapters 6 to 20, you know, just easy, as easy as that, and make some observations. What we see in chapters 6 to 20 is a series of judgments unfolding. And the judgments grow in intensity, which in and of itself is telling us something. The judgment is depicted in three main unfolding events, and the feature of the number seven, again, is significant here as it depicts something full and complete. So this time it's full and complete judgment that is before us. And so the three main unfolding events that you will find, if you just read all of 6 through to 20, you'd find the opening, first is the opening of the seven seals, uh, and then the four apocalyptic horsemen, which is awesome. And then the second bit is this, the series of the seven trumpets. And then we have the, the, the increase in intensity towards the seven bowls that are poured out. All of these are connected to what flows out of the throne room. And just for example, the scope of the bowls of God's wrath compared to even the section on the seven trumpets is greater and more devastating 
and there is a, a delay uh, uh, and, a, and a device, if you like, from the way it's written that is, is saying it's indicative of God's patience. There's a, it's not just that this is all just rolled out, but there's a, a, a patience as this intensifies as an opportunity for people to turn and respond. And we also have, uh, throughout the sections that we've read and some of the bits we missed in chapters 15 and 16, um, the reappearance of the plagues. So think of Exodus and the plagues and you'll know the story. And so the plagues remind you of uh, God rescuing people from their Egyptian slavery and leading them into the promised land. And so John, the writer, is very cognizant of this, that these plagues are reappearing in, in a symbolic form here. And John is clearly interpreting this revelation of Jesus as a fuller and more final exodus or work of liberation uh, by depicting it in this way. Perhaps now is a good moment just to remind ourselves of the nature of the apocalyptic literature that we are wrestling with before us. Highly symbolic and non-literal literalism at times it symbolizes real things, but it, it not in actuality by the symbol. We are not following a dispensationalist view here, you might have picked that up, which interprets these events as if they are almost literally going to happen and we, we need to spot it. A dispensationalist would believe in certain dispensations of time that where God acts in particular ways and would, would look to, is this a pre-millennia, is this a thousand years, is Jesus going to come and take some and they're going to be, and then others will be left behind in a thousand years or how is this all going to plan out and he's trying to plot that. Um, that's okay, right? We can all agree to this. I'm just not going down that route. I'm not saying I'm, we have to decode world history here. Um, um, but we, we are dealing in symbolism. And just an example of that, um, just for If you went to chapter 16 and verse 16, we have something sort of symbol, literal, but not uh, uh, actual, real in the sense of what you might look for. So it's the word Armageddon. You know, have you ever seen the film? You know the notion. Well, it's here in Revelation. Like, it's amazing how famous that is compared to it appears once in the Bible, right? And there's movies and it's, you know, it's filled with associations with the book of Revelation. It's a symbolic place from the Old Testament. The place name means Mount of Megiddo. And it is basically a city in the Old Testament where, where numerous battles occurred. And so it's entirely logical for it to be used as a symbol where a cosmic battle is going to happen. So it's, it's taking something familiar to them of a place where all this stuff happened and saying, there's not going to be a, a physical battle like that, but it is pointing to a full and final cosmic battle. So it's a, it's a symbol. The famous, uh, famous four, not the famous, sorry, the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse and the first four seals. I just want to go into a wee bit of detail in, in that section. Um, the, the scroll is opened uh, by the Lamb, and I'm deeply thankful for Michael Gorman's clarity on this theme in general. But the four horsemen, they seem to represent a chain of events that history and this very painful present moment we're in um, has known all too well. That of conquest, the breakdown of peace, death and war, economic injustice, famine and disease. 
And the first wave of violent imagery we have expressed in the opening of the seals, in the first four in particular, expresses the apocalyptic insight that the world's suffering is allowed by God, comes from the throne, but is more fundamentally a result of sin. We also need to see in there that all of this does proceed from the throne. And these things as divine punishment, perhaps, there's a, it's like the Romans one snowball effect of sin. It's like God, it's both his judgment and his allowing of sin just to do what it will do. It's just giving people over to their, their ways to show, look what happens. And his judgment comes not sometimes directly because of what he allows sin to be seen for what it is. And so there's a sense here where the judgment is in the form of allowing humanity to do what it wants to itself. And at times in Revelation, we have to be careful. There's both human sin and divine punishment, but the sin always precedes any judgment and is not the will of God. In other words, there's not just an initiation of sort of a God who just acts to war or acts to, to judge. It's it's when it gets to a point where there's been a rebellion of a certain scale. And in case you immediately jump to seeing this as justifying violence in God's name, don't. There is a difference to God allowing wars and initiating fights. Listen to these words from Eugene Peterson commenting on the second horse, the red horse that you heard described. And listen to it as somebody who was writing through a North American lens, which might give a clue to where he's come from. For a time writ large in the headlines, war is perceived as an evil and there are prayers for peace. But not for long, for it is quickly glamorized as patriotic or rationalized as just. But war is a red horse, bloody and cruel, making life miserable and horrid. The perennial trick is to glorify war so that we accept it as a proper means of achieving goals. But it is evil. It is opposed to Christ. Christ does not sit on the red horse ever. It's a powerful thing. I'd be a wonder just to see how the headlines go over the next while where we turn it into patriotic vitriol of, of achieving. He says, Christ never sits on the red horse. Just as a, a breather, which we just all had. So if you read in chapter 6 through to 20, there is this thing that theologians over the years, they call the interludes. So you, you'll read chapters 6 through to 20, which I know you're all going to do when you, when you go home, is, and there's these sections where it just takes a break. And it means a couple of things. So like, for example, if you want to take a note of them, I'll Instagram this. But it's chapter 7, 1 to 17, chapters 10, 1 to 11, to, sorry, chapters 10, 1 to 11, 13, and then chapter 14, 1 to 20, chapters 19, 1 to 10, and chapters 21 to 6. That'll be on Instagram. Don't worry about it. But they're interludes, and they're, they're kind of like a breather from the 
the heat and that, and it's a literary breather, but it's also doing something, it's moving the plot forward, because in these moments, there's reassurance to the suffering. There's reassurance to the faithful. And it's just an interesting thing to be aware of as you read through and think of that um, movement of the writers trying to lead you in of these times for assurance in, a, in amidst all the chaos. Again, just to describe and notice things in this section, is to, it's important to, to note that as, a, that as dominant as the theme of judgment is in chapters 6 through to 20, the climax is not vengeance, but the climax is salvation, healing, and justice flowing. The end saw is not just payback, but wholeness and restoration. And even the some uncomfortable and maybe for some gruesome moments where you heard read chapters 19, the celebration of the enemy's downfall, the beast and, and multiple layers of violent imagery with a hallelujah. The hallelujah is not in the vengeance. The hallelujah is in the overall picture of evil being triumphed and in the restoration of God's good world into the garden city. And so it's important to know within the context of Revelation that it is set toward that end and that goal, not a goal of payback, not a goal of cheap vengeance. It's a goal of, it's, it's a vision of justice and truth reigning. And that's just probably tip of the iceberg stuff. And so what, then if that's just what's going on, then, then what sort of, what, do we, what sense do we make of? What theology is at play? Like, how do we start playing with that in terms of how we interact with God and, and live with him? Um, I've already kind of rejected the pre-post-millennial dispensational thing. So we're not guessing about world events. And if you want to go down that road, route, fine. Do you know if there's only a thousand year reign of Christ with some are left behind? I am in the camp of, well, we'll find out one day. And, you know, until then, I, 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 yeah, I'm not going to waste that much time. But we are, so we're not guessing about how world events are going to play out. That's just my taking. Come and buy me a coffee and tell me why I'm stupid, but that's fine. But we are instead doing what Re uh, Revelation does, is recognize this age that we are under is an, is an age where there is evil at large and prevalent, which is allowed for a time and for a time until the return of Christ. We are going to follow John with that picture of Christ reigning, but allowing a present evil age that is yet as the kingdom to be fully consummated with the return of Christ. So we're going to expect that. We're going to look for that. We're going to understand when we see that, that that does not signify Christ, Christ being absent or out of control but a plot unfolding before us in our lives. We're also going to recognize the consequences of sin. Back to that scene of the first seals being opened and where God allows evil as part of his divine judgment, where he allows sin to, to show its, you know, its ugliness and, 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 and its ill effect and it shows us and allows us to see what, what sin does in terms of destroying humanity and destroying our own humanity, destroying our own relationships 
from the, the, the small familial ones to the, the, the structural evils that we'll wrestle with. And we, we don't deduce on this theme of sin that God's patience is God's permission or his indifference to the wrong. I, I bet therapists and counselors probably wrestle this all the time. We, we, we're called to be patient with people in their stuff, but, but that doesn't have to be permission to say, oh, that, that doesn't matter. Oh, I'm just indifferent to that. And so we need to realize that God is so, so patient with us. Slow to anger, binding in love, but he's not indifferent to wrong. He's not indifferent to lies. He's not indifferent to us, you know, wrecking ourselves in our world. We also need to realize that judgment is not arbitrary, but is commensurate with the sin. Like, like it's not like somebody, not, yeah, if you're caught speeding on the way, like, it's not like there's a thunderbolt from lightning is going to take you out. For, like, that's just, people, when we live with these caricatures in our mind that there's some sort of God, like pulling levers in the sky that is just, no, 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 that's not what we find here. We find a God who is so slow to anger and holding back to, and any response is commensurate to the scale of the atrocity of what is being done. Somebody give the example of the ecological crisis. You could make a case that it shows that what left our own devices, we could do with ourselves and our neighbors. And there might be a sense of God's judgment in that. Like, want to keep abusing the planet and each other? Look what happens. However, in the same breath, I would really want to say guessing or being specific to world events when judgment is operative is almost always in the tantamount to playing God. When you are at the schools, there's a lot of people pointing at that and going, ah, God's judgment on that tantamount to playing God. Be very, very wary of people who are so quick to make huge, huge statements about often people groups or world events in the name of God. And what we see as well in this, we were singing about earlier, show your power, send your power, that God's power, this lamb power is always there. Whatever gaps open up in our mind, this is a powerful vision from chapters four and five at work. And this judgment is not set within the theme or plot where the the climax, as I said, is ha ha, vengeance. That's not what we find. The climax of this whole plot is not in the judgment, but in the goal, which is the eradication of evil and the healing of nations and the restored garden city. The end game is so different here of what we find in the scriptures. And God's power expressed in this sacrificial way has this vision is working towards. But I also want to show you, it's not just the end game that's different. His means and his ways to get there are entirely different. His weapons are different. And here the contrast would be to Rome. His weapons were so different to the, the, the might of, of Rome. In, in chapters 19, like a Roman general on a horse, we find Christ coming. So they were clear on that. We have this powerful image coming of the one like a Roman general. Christ is depicted on a white horse in this appearance. 
but his title shows that how he rules is by a different means. He got a range of titles, but one of them is he is the word of God. And so he comes as a one and his weapons is his word of God and he wages war and yet he's dipped already in blood except it's his own blood. So the, you can imagine the context. The war he is about to fight is not a physical violent war. The war he has done is in his own giving of himself and that, that desire in his, in his sacrificial heart. And what he did on the cross was where he drew the curtains on violence and shame and sin and, and, and showed and opened up a different way. And this is the clue whenever we don't understand and we go like, well, what else is going on? And we have this picture of mercy triumphing over judgment. Not spelled out in minutia detail, but we have this picture that mercy will triumph over judgment in Christ. Now we are to invite and highlight objections worthy of longer consideration than I can give just now. One notable one would be a feminist objection of projecting patriarchal domination onto God and therefore the image of a sovereign God functions as religious sanction for authoritarian structures of power and domination in human society. So it's like a projection and then how we use that, it just gets built into society as an excuse for domination. And one of the, that's an objection that's very prevalent. And one of the things we need to do to that is say, absolutely true. 100% that has happened. And the rule under a Christian emperor, for starters, in history was no better than the rule under the, the non-Christian emperors, for starters. And you could probably point to your own examples of time and time again, when in the name of religion and in the name of Christ and in the name of the Bible, domination of people groups has happened. And I think at that point, we, there is a place to recognize that. And I think the work is to continually try and open our minds to the suspicion of human power and abuse of it. However, this is in stark contrast to the vision in Revelation, which sees absolute power in God alone that delegitimizes absolute human power. And it's precisely by ascribing absolute power to God that it relativizes all human power. And so there is a, a convincing argument that says that actually, when you take out God and you make yourself, that's actually when the problems really ensue. There's specific objections we don't have time to even note really from the Old Testament itself. But as we move towards some hopeful readings, of Revelation, let me put these things before you. That God's anger is in response to evil. God's judgment is about putting things right. He will put things right. He is holy and just. A lot of the imagery describes the effect of divine judgment, not the means of divine judgment. Don't be, mistake some of the violent imagery for literal and for the means of way God is going to do it. It describes the impact of what will eradicate evil, but not the means. In God's patience, he sometimes delays. 
In God's judgment, he allows sin to turn in on itself in judgment. At times, he permits wars, famines, showing the snowball effect of sin, but he acts to heal. There is good news. God's judgment is rooted in God's character. The way he judges will be merciful and true, not on the red horse. Ultimate power resides in him alone. There is something of which, I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase, the apophatic tradition. I suspect maybe uh, not many of you are. But it's a tradition that kind of is sometimes referred to as negative theology. It's about when words fail and are not sufficient enough to describe the reality. It's exploring that tradition. When, when just we are at the limit of what we can put into words, images to understand, um, it's a tradition that, that, that follows that. Um, there's also a thing called anthropomorphism, which is using human characteristics and ascribing to God, so God's arm and walking, God's voice, all these things of human things we do and ascribe them to describe pictures of God. And the interesting thing in, in the book of Revelation is we find the apophatic tradition and we also find that anthropomorphism avoided at points, particularly in this theme of judgment. So we have words like Alpha and Omega, the word of God, smoke, thunder. We, we have all these non-human-like terms to try and help us see something. When words are not enough, when they run out and fail to ad- adequately describe something. And in chapters 16, 17, we have a great example of this, and I'm indebted to Richard Bauckham for pointing this out. Uh, verse 17 of chapter 16 says this, the seventh bowl poured out. So this is the climax of the final judgment, the, the worst of the worst. The seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. And Bauckham's point is that John refers to the great voice, which at this point is pouring out final judgment. And the writer adopts a kind of indirectness that Jewish writers commonly avoided, this anthropomorphism of reference to God's own voice. So the voice is not said to be God's, but it comes from the throne. And it's in other words for John to say, I'm out of words. He is not like us. In his transcendence, Us as creatures, we have a limit. He is the creator, the ultimate one that appoints his ways are not our ways. We we cannot grasp and put into words, into concepts, the full extent of who God is in all his glory and might. We run out of words. And this is in Revelation, kind of like gives us a Job moment where it's like, you remember Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? And John is awakening us at some point with all the gaps and unanswered questions that still leave and holding before you the metaphor of wrestling, we hold out hope for our world's trials over evil, even in the darkest times. We go after creative, peaceful modes of resistance. Christ is not on the red horse. 
We remind ourselves that we offer a universal hope, not a private religious club. We live with a mysterious longing for things to be put right and join God's people praying, asking, how long, God, until your kingdom comes in all its fullness? And we also humbly submit to the fact that sin is not always just out there. Christianity doesn't just wave a big finger out there. The consequences of the curse and the fall work through our own human hearts, but they don't have to determine our future. In Christ, healing is possible. Strength to overcome is given. And so if there are things in your life that cause pain and you have done wrong, you can come to the cross. And if there's things that you're hurting and needing justice and needing some hope and needing some rest, you can come to the cross. And when words fail, we take up the song of heaven saying, worthy is the lamb. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bring our doubts, our questions, our limits before you. We do so mindful of a very chaotic time in our world. Lord, I just, we, we need you, we need your strength and your power. When we run out of our own strength, Lord, we remind ourselves that we are not to live on our own strength. We are to walk and rest in you. Give us the strength, Lord, that we need to worship you in spirit and in truth, we pray. Amen.